These are the dialogues of a peculiar character. My name is Thomas Gideon. Join me in chasing my peculiar passion for beer and brewing through conversations with the amazing and curious people who work in the beer industry. I look forward to sharing with you the fascinating stories about how and where beer is made and served, whether that is mere minutes or many hundreds of miles from my home. This is the final episode of Season 5, and I will be taking a short break. In that interval, I would like to ask you, as I try to do no more than once a season, to think about ways that you can support this project. The most important one, and it is a very modest request, is to visit patreon.com slash peculiar character and see if any of the levels of support there are of interest to you in terms of the benefits you get. The contribution is very modest, anything from a dollar to $5. You can always contribute more. That's always welcome. It helps defray my hosting costs and the incidental production costs involved with this project. And if I'm able to successfully grow the base of supporters, we'll unlock more opportunities in terms of uh, travel, special episodes, special guests as the project evolves. If you don't have the means or the resources to contribute in that way, you can still help. Absolutely. Wherever you got this podcast from, wherever you subscribe, if you take some time to leave a rating and especially a comment, that's super helpful in terms of finding new listeners. Of course, social media is fantastic as well. If you're here in Maryland, I think that's helping very much to build a local listener base. So do consider sharing episodes and news about the project's progress that way again, to attract more people in, to give it a listen and check it out, see if they might like it. And of course, as always, when you're sitting in a bar, enjoying a wonderful craft beer and thinking about all the things that you've learned through this project over the past year plus, you might just turn to the person next to you, whether they be a friend or a friend you haven't made yet, and tell them about the podcast and encourage them to give a listen. In this episode, You'll hear the first of what I hope will become a series of voices interspersed over the coming months and seasons of people who are helping me with my endeavor to start up a brewery. In this instance, this is a a critical member of my consulting team. I do have the good fortune and the resources to be able to keep my day job while pursuing this dream and bring in outside expertise to supplement my own, to help me to learn and to help me do the things that are needful in pursuing an endeavor like this. His background is considerable in the industry, going back to his origins as a home brewer uh, and forwards through that, going professional. And not only that, not only stopping there as uh, a lot of people do and consider to be successful, but pursuing his curiosity, his learning, and ultimately his passion to consult with folks like me that have need of that experience and skill to help realize our dreams. I'm talking remotely with a friend in North Carolina to learn more about his background in the industry and his work as both a consultant and a teacher. Welcome. 
Thanks, Thomas. To start with, can you say your name and uh, briefly tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. My name's Thomas Vincent. I've been brewing professionally for a little over eight years. Um, I started off working in homebrew shops before that and kind of it seems like everyone who was working in homebrew shops with me at around that time period has jumped into the industry by and large. Um, while I was doing that, I also ended up teaching a lot of introductory classes as to teach people how to homebrew. And as a result, um, a few years ago, I started, ended up teaching professionally at Wake Tech in North Carolina in their craft beer brewing program at the first level course. Um, over the course of my brewing career, I've worked at Big Boss based in Raleigh, North Carolina, Natty Greens when they had a brew pub in the area. Uh, I did all the opening and prep work for Compass Rose Brewery, uh, which is opened. And then currently I'm working on NAS Brewworks and Grill, which is going to be opening in Graham later this year. And in addition to that, I've been doing consulting. Um, currently, my consulting base is about roughly six clients. Uh, they range in location from Pennsylvania to Florida. Um, so generally on the eastern seaboard, although technically the Pennsylvania client is also based in Dubai. So um, kind of a little international. Um, how I ended up starting consulting was when I was working for Compass Rose. We had a um, first brewery that they had opened before they opened this one that was down in uh, Guanajuato, Mexico, um, Cerveza Embejador, and um, I ended up going down and consulting and reviewing their business process and then improving that, and then when they had a new staff going in and hiring and basically doing a lot of developing their SOPs, developing new recipe base, uh, everything soup to nuts for them, so that's kind of the broad strokes of what I've been doing. That's a lot that we're going to come back to. If we go back to the beginning, though, what specifically about beer called you to chase it? Well, when I was in college, I ended up going to Tübingen, Germany. And while I was there, I fell in love with great beer, um, especially Hefeweizens in particular. But um, I've, I've always had that more bent towards the more malt and yeast determined styles. Um, the IPAs, of course, have been in vogue since the 2000s. But, and I, I can enjoy a good IPA. I have nothing wrong with that. But by and large, my, my palate more tends towards classic styles and specifically more the yeast and malt driven ones. How'd you get started at the, at the homebrew store at the very start? Well, um, even before I left college, I had actually sent them, the local homebrew shop, a, uh, a resume and a batch of my beer. They didn't end up hiring me then, but when I came back um, to the same town after college and after working in the D.C. area for a number of years, um, they had an opening. They needed extra help around the holidays, and I just kind of eased into it and started off just helping around the holidays um, as seasonal filler. And then when it got busy, I still maintained my day job, and so I ended up um, learning as much as I could while I was doing that, but at the same time, a lot of it just revolved around just helping them seasonally when they needed the extra help. And then when we moved to North Carolina, which would have been a little over 10 and a half years ago, um, at that point, I started actually just working in a homebrew shop full time while I was looking for work elsewhere. Um, and while I was at American Brewmaster, I was also starting to help out and volunteer at Big Boss 
on their bottling line and doing package days. So that early work at, at Big Boss, that was was that very intentional? How did that come about? Like, was there a moment where you thought, uh, like you were saying before, I have friends in this industry, I want to join this industry? Or what was sort of the rationale there? I wanted to learn more, I think, was fundamentally where I was at at that stage. Uh, a lot of my time was spent um, packaging days, especially for a bottling line, are not a lot of fun. But they're very necessity. They're kind of process-driven. Um, the one thing I will recommend is if anyone ever goes to work on a packaging line, um, don't get in the car the next day and, oh, say, ride to Atlanta for Dragon Con because um, your body's going to, the muscles are going to all tense up and, and you're not going to walk through that Dragon Con or that conference, whatever it may be, in, in too good a shape. Um, so, but it was more just a curiosity and get involved and see the process. And, you know, they paid in beer. They also paid in cash, which was always nice. Um, and it was a, a little more entertaining than what I was doing just at the homebrew shop. And I kept like, I would volunteer whenever they needed an extra hand. And sometimes I would switch my schedules so that I'd do a packaging day and on my day off at the homebrew shop or sw swap my day off so that I could do, go do a packaging day kind of thing. Um, fundamentally what was happening. And I just kept showing up and being persistent and eventually they had an opening and when they had the opening, um, I went up to the head brewer and said, uh, I, I hear your cellarman's leaving. And he just looked at me and said, you can start Monday. And the other thing he had told me around that time was you understand fermentation fundamentally. That's not what you're learning. You're going to learn the big equipment. And how was that experience? Uh, it's something that I think you and I have talked about a bit in uh, the past and over the years, that comparison between the homebrew scale and the big equipment. Uh, and also it, it, it was that driven by that, that same curiosity, that desire to learn. I think I developed the itch. Yeah. Uh, yeah I think that's definite. Um, also what came out of that was um, there, there was a recognition that this was going to be a hard task. Uh, it was going to be a, not an easy road because the average starting age in a brewery is usually below 20 or 35 most certainly. And I was right around 40, give or take, at the time when I started. Uh, because of that, I knew that that meant that I was going to come home a lot of sore, a lot of physically sore for that first few months until I built up the muscles that I needed. Um, you're on your feet. It's a cold, wet, or hot environment every single day. Um, I learned a lot of uh, what not to do. Um, what process steps. Back then, I don't think the industry was as well documented in like standard operating procedures and the like as it is now. Um, it was very much by the seat of our pants. Um, there are certain things that we did there that, uh, from a safety perspective, I don't think I would ever do in this day and age. Um, and it's not been that long, but it's just there have been enough of a sea change in, in process. And uh, yeah, I, I got hooked around that time. And, and what happened was um, my wife loves to tell the story that uh, so around that time I, I was working in homebrew shops and, and she said, well, do you want to work in a brewery? And I said, oh, no, 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 that's way too much work. That's too hard work. I don't want to do that. That's that's too much effort. And then I got hired by Big Boss and I started to work there. And then after a little while, she's like, well, 
so you're working in the cellar, but do you want to be a brewer? And I said, oh, no, 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 I couldn't do that. that that's too much work. That's just, I, I, I can't put in that kind of effort. I, I don't want to do that at this point. And she said, okay. So then a year, year and a half pass, and I can't work on the brew deck really because they had three excellent, very experienced brewers. And this opportunity at another brewery came up and they said, well, you know, I thought about it. And after a while I went ahead and applied. So now I was the single sole brewer at the uh, brew pub facility. And at that point she said, well, are you going to ever open your own place? And I said, no, 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 that's way too much work. I can't ever do that. That's so then after about a year of that, I turned to her and said, okay, I'm ready <laughs> at this point. So now I'm on my second project. I guess I can't learn. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, what, what was it? I mean, I, I think, uh, the homebrewers out there understand perhaps that sort of, um, desire to go pro, uh, even if they don't necessarily appreciate all of the hard work uh, and some of the differences going to an industrial scale, but to go from, from that, from a couple of jobs, uh, working your way up as, as often was the case from the cellar to the brew deck to go from that to actually building your own. What was the rationale or the thought process? Like what, what was it for you where not only learning and mastering the big equipment uh, was enough, but actually to design and install and build out your own big equipment? I think a lot of it comes from wanting to have more control over my recipe base and, and where I was going directionally with the brewing that I was doing. Um, I had very limited say on what I was doing at the brew pub. And a lot of that's okay. I mean, it's whether you're in a production brewery or a brew pub, you're always going to have certain flagship or year-round brands. And, and these are what make you money cash in day in and day out. And that's the reality. It's just having that creativity when you don't have to make those that is really kind of what I think sets up certain work environments. But uh, a former head of the Guild in North Carolina, he, he did a video with us for the class. And at one point he said, if you really want to brew, just go ahead and be a brewer. But if you want to be a brewer, don't go open a brewery, go find something else because of the passion. Um, so it, it, it's kind of a sticky point there, I guess. And for me, I knew I wasn't going to be satisfied with the existing management I'd been working with at that point, And I was looking for other opportunities. And it just kind of fit into that environment at that time. How much of that was uh, kind of the constraints of coming into a system that somebody else had designed and built versus uh, that stylistic freedom and that creativity? Mm, I, I think it would be tend to be more the latter, the stylistically, because a, a brew system in a brew house, yeah, you're dealt the cards that you're dealt with. But at the same time, as, as I tend to say about uh, that first brew pub is that that was my first love. I mean, the, the brew deck at, at Big Boss, I love it, and it's one of my favorites, and, and she can put out amazing beer. But I brewed, let's see, it was about 176 batches on the system in, in the brew pub. And that experience, the first 39 batches were the same three beers over and over and over. And so the, the beauty of that was really getting dialed in on the performance of the machine, how it behaved, what procedure things. Um, one of the big things I learned was we used pre-milled grain at that facility. Um, there's nothing wrong with pre-milled grain, but on some brew systems, you need to alter the crush on it. 
And altering your crush when you're a home brewer is real easy because you could just adjust your mill. Well, when you buy pre-milled, that comes in uh, coarse, medium, or refined. And that's the three grades. And you need to know if you need to make an adjustment on that. And I learned after many six-hour mash days that that system needed something different. So, yeah, I, I still love that system to this day. And it had a lot of pains and a lot of quirks. But it had a certain personality, a beauty to it. It was copper-laden, which... Uh, of course, you know, makes much better beer because the copper never touches the beer. So therefore it has all that impact. <laughs> so, um, I, I, for the listener who may not know the, um, the coarseness or fineness of the grind that's affecting your, your extract that's affecting your, um, wart separation. So how easy it is to actually get, um, the liquid out when you're done mashing. Right. So, right. That that makes sense if it's pre-milled, like you're giving up a, a variable or you're giving up some control over a variable um, that then impacts downstream, like several control points in your process, right? Right. And this one, basically what would happen is that there was, um, it was a German-built system. And so what you typically do in a brew house is you mash into mash ton. And if you have a louder separate, you may run off to that. And then you go from there. Well, this German built system, actually you mashed into the kettle. And then in the kettle, you would raise and do your temperature rests if there were any temperature rests, which uh, with the wheat beers, it, I highly recommend. I mean, it's kind of an outdated process that with model, modern modified malts, it's not necessarily suggested. But with wheat beers, it's the exception to the rule. And we did about a six step process mash there consistently. And then after that mash, we'd reach through the temperature points up to 70 degrees Celsius. German built, everything on it was, of course, metric. Then we would process and, and basically pump it over to the louder kettle for recirculating, recirculate it for 20 minutes, a half hour, and then start to do our runoff. Well, the way the runoff came back, I could see how fast the flow was coming. It was actually really handy because you could take instant readings of the flow because of the way it came out of the cat into the kettle. But the problem is you could also tell when it was stopped that you weren't getting much flow at all. And if you're gathering 8.3 barrels, which is what a 10 hectoliter system carries, um, that's what 300 gallons roughly. And you're not, if you realizing you're not gathering that 300 gallons, you have to do something. Now the Germans allowed for a back flush system, which is not uncommon for a home brewer to be able to do, but um, they very adamantly, you were not supposed to be doing this. And so by the German engineering, it was an automated control panel that had a, um, uh, we had an air compressor and there were air controlled valves throughout the system. And what would happen is you would have to set all the valves closed climb down the brew deck, walk around the entire brew deck, reach in with your arm at an awkward angle and turn one manual valve, then turn around and walk all the way back up, climb up on the brew deck, do the back flush, and then come down. Because basically the point of the Germans and their thinking is this is not something you should be ever doing. So we are not going to make it easy for you to do. You can do it, but it's not going to be easy. You're not going to like this. <laughs> 
With that separate louder ton, did you have anything like a, a mash rake or knives or something like that? Or was that uh, that back flushing or that underletting really the only option that you had if things got stuck? We had rakes, but they were not, they were underpowered for the unit or they were stripped and they did not tend to, to do much cutting into the grain. So you were pretty stuck. Once you were in, you were in. So that has to say something about, in your experience, the the constraints of the system, whether it's one you built or it's one that you inherited, it's really kind of the, the creativity, the ability to learn, the adaptability of the brewer to work with those systems to overcome that, that you could <laughs> describe this system as your your first love because of some of its advantages um, right. and, and not uh, give it so many demerits because of its disadvantages because you still have enough control to kind of pursue like uh, the wheat beers that, that uh, you described. Exactly. And, and that was a lot of the fun of the system was you, you could do very specialty mass, mashes. And at the start, a lot of times it would be a 10-hour brew day for a Hefeweizen in a normal gravity. Well, shortly before I, I left there, I did a foreign export stout, and I think I was done in six and a half hours. So I'd really nailed the system where I could I figured out all the tweaks and I got my process times down to something uh, really phenomenal on that system. Um, there was another quirk of the system that I was going to mention, but it had been over in Korea before it made its way to the United States from Germany. And at some point someone had been in there scratching it, trying to clean it with metal. Um, and so it had a lot of scratches. So there was a lot of dealing with, uh, uh, passivating or basically curing the tank on a regular basis to ensure that it was at the proper level of hygiene. With the styles that you described, with the, the kind of styles that inspired you at the start, did that inform, uh, like, with the first brew house you built at Compass Rose, right, um, The how you approached that to be able to also do either uh, decoction or at least uh, program temperature to be able to kind of hit those multiple rests and do wheat beers or other things where having uh, that particular control uh, might be an advantage to produce uh, certain styles? Yes, I, I've definitely since then made the realization that um, that it was something I definitely wanted and then I've incorporated into every design since where I've been working with it. Um, I do very clearly, especially if I'm going to be the one brewing on it, make sure that I have that ability. Um, there's a certain precursor and it's horrible for me to try and pronounce, but basically it, it gives the clove character in, in Hefeweizen's and if you don't do that stepped mash, you don't get that character. And I've seen through a lot of beers, um, one of the beers that we made was we took our standard house wit beer and we doubled the recipe. And we called it a double wit. And of course, imagine that. It's very creative. And what we did was when it was made on site, it had a phenomenal depth to it. And I think it, it's owed to that step temperature mash. Well, when I was no longer brewing for the company, they tried to make it again, but they made it at another facility. And that facility did not have the temperature rest capability. And I walked in and I saw it and I said, well, I know I didn't make that batch. And so I, I tried a taste of it and realized, no, that's just doesn't have the same depth of character that the temperature rest really makes that phenomenal difference. So it is something that I look for on my systems. I, I think it, especially if you love Hefeweizen's or anything with wheat as a predominant character, you need to have that ability to do a step rest. 
Yeah, um, from my online brewing course and the one wheat beer that I did, I did some uh, research into that precursor that you mentioned. I believe it's ferulic acid. And I think mm-hmm. yeah. with um, being able to rise up through the temperatures uh, in the way that you described too, I think with wheat, um, doing a, a rest that activates the beta-glucanase is helpful as well. So it helps with yeah. the wort vis- viscosity uh, and your, your separation so you're not not as likely to have to crawl underneath the brew deck to, uh, to do that, that back flush. Right. So from that, I mean, that makes sense given sort of the, the styles that you like, the targets and the control that feeds into that. But now you're, you're consulting, you mentioned you have, uh, six projects that you're working on. Um, are, are these customers that approached you because they, they know your reputation, they know that these are kinds of the styles and systems that you build or are they more varied? And and if so, if that latter, that it's not always somebody looking to do kind of that uh, program temperature control, um, how do you how do you still find like that that curiosity and that interest to drive into those projects and help them succeed? Well, I I think it is more the latter that it's it's kind of been by um, a number of factors where I've I've ended up finding the clients. Um, some of them have been by rep- reference by other people within the industry who have known me and that I have, you know, certain things that I can bring to the table for people. Um, a lot of times it's people who are starting out and know that they need help and they need assistance on a base level and that just that base experience. In other cases, I've actually reached out and I've been the one looking, you know, and, and, and offered my experience. And that case is really unusual because uh, the person wants, he, he actually is hired. Um, I can't really get into too much detail, but they've decided to have two. He hired two experts. And the idea being he, he gets both opinions. He looks at well, how much they have common ground and then the outliers. And then he went back to a bunch of other brewery friends when he had the layouts and they had like two minor quibbles of, Oh, this could be adjusted or this could be adjusted. And he went, okay, this was worth my money that I paid to these people to get different opinions and ideas. And so I don't think most people are into Hefeweizens as nearly as much or wheat beers as I am. And so for that, I don't know that there is that my experience base means as much to them. A lot of cases, I'm talking far more about build out and process and good design. And, and that's really where my head comes from on this. It's not as much about what I specifically have as ideas on what should be ultimately done. When I do the wake tech classes, there are two words that I use constantly. And I tell the students, they're going to get bored to death of me using it. It's, it depends. And because so much of brewing does depend upon you know, setting out your schedule. How are you doing this brewing process? What are your steps? Are you measuring your results? Are you measuring what your outcomes? Do you know what's going on? And as long as you're doing that, that's great. Um, There's a lot of different paths. I was talking to a brewer yesterday and the gentleman, um, he was not wearing, uh, he was wearing flip-flops in his brewery walking around after hours. And it was one of those things of, I don't know that I'd ever make that decision in my brewery, especially if I was around some others. And so, you know, but it's his place and he does things the way he wants to. Um, 
I can't count how many breweries I've been to. I'm sure it's over 500 at this point. I, I couldn't even hazard to guess. But a lot of it has laid out in my head that when I look at places, I look at design areas. I look for the flaw. I look for where does this make sense? Where does the structure not make sense? How can we make things more efficient? Where does it... I, I visited a brewery a, a few weeks ago and... Um, their tap room is going to be inside with their production space, essentially. And they're having a glycol chiller in that same room. And I went, oh, that's going to be real uncomfortable. And it wouldn't have taken that much to put it outside and put a little roof over it and keep all that temperature and thermal elements out. I mean, it's little things like that that uh, when I see a great idea from somebody else, I incorporate it into my future designs, you know. The old adage, what is it, uh, good artists borrow, great artists steal. Um, so um, there's a lot of that where I am I definitely look at what uh, great ideas I've seen from people and, and take advantage of those where it makes sense. Is that equally applicable across uh, the different sorts of projects that you work on? Uh, I know uh, from some of our past discussions that these range from uh, the nanoscale, a couple of barrels, up to... Uh, what's more typical, uh, a full production brewery um, from um, that usual kind of uh, production at whatever scale to to a farm brewery. It, does that serve you in good stead, like that, that, that kind of picking and choosing, that translation of ideas, that identification of flaws? Or are there particular challenges that, that still crop up when you have to deal with a diversity of different clients? I think there are going to be problems that crap up through everyone's individual designs because no two places are the same um, for all the diverse. And there is a vast diversity of equipment that's out there and what can be done and used to meet specific needs of situations. Um, that said, I think it starts with what's the scale? What's the scope? How, how big are we talking about? What's where are you intending to go with a sense of scale is if you're doing a seven barrel brewery, that's great. Well, let's make sure we can at least fit 15 barrel fermenters in there so that you can double batch in the future. Even if you don't plan on it for now, you should always plan for expansion capabilities into every design because one of the most common things that I've noticed over the last, especially with the more recent craft brewery explosion is people get into places because they think, oh, I can put a brewery in there and they don't really see how much of a brewery can you fit into the space. If you're a brew pub, as long as you can put in double-sized fermenters, you're probably okay. If you're a nano and you decide you want to put in a seven-barrel system and you have an eight-foot ceiling, you're going to have some major issues down the road. So a lot of that that is where we start and have to have start with conversations with brewers and people who want to open a brewery is where is a sense of scale? Do you want a huge tap room? Okay, that's great. Well, we have to make sure the parking's there. We have to make sure that the tap room space, that the public space is there sufficiently. Um, one of the projects I've worked on, uh, it was in a building that ultimately was 28,000 square feet. It could, under the right management, say five years ago or pre that, become a regional brewery and take over all 28,000 square feet of this space and put in a nice size tap room. There was areas, there were 
built with the build out, there were situations that it made sense that you could actually put in a good size packaging line into a design. And, and there was a layout of order that, you know, this comes after this in terms of upstream and downstream flow of a brewery and where things can structure out. And a lot of times, I mean, that's one of the things that the, the people I've worked with have really taught me is that you can only start at the end of the brewing process and make process improvements to build on the system. If, if you only have a two-head canner, you can buy a 30-barrel brew house tomorrow, but it's not going to do you any good. You need to be able to scale up at the end of your system and then scale back to the brew house eventually so that everything makes a sense of scale. Um, and that's there's a lot of thoughts in that. Um, I've, I've seen projects where they bought breweries or old bottling lines and literally spent five, six years rebuilding it from scratch. And, and I mean literally down to the little control box for the, the bottling line. And we had an old German guy who came over and we were told to disassemble these boxes and put them together. And they had about 40, 45 pieces inside of them. And they were about the size of a large shoe box. And we got it fully disassembled, started to put it together and realized we didn't know how it got back together. So started to disassemble another one, looked at it, realized, oh, this goes here. So we start and get the first two together. And then we open the third and realize there's a gasket here. It wasn't on those two machines at all. So now we have to disassemble those to get back to the. So over the course of a day, I got about me and another guy both got about six, eight of these boxes redone over a full day. At the end of the day, the German guy came up, picked up each one, shook it, helped by his ear, went, mm, this one's good, those four don't, redo them, and walked away. And that was the, the instruction that we got out of him. Did you, did you find out what it was that he was listening for? Or? No, he didn't. He wasn't interested in telling anyone. He was just, the Germans often come through the process. <laughs> so it sounds like um, as a consultant, you're leveraging both uh, your experience, all the things that you've seen, uh, the things that might inspire, as you say, like the the ideas that you cherry pick and utilize, but also collaborating with the customer to uh, leverage that experience to imagine, to think beyond the first year, the second year, third year, to think, as you said, like ultimately uh, assume success. We all want to assume success when we start up breweries. I don't think there's a, a somebody who opens a brewery who is planning to fail. I mean, maybe there's some outliers out there, but I think most people want to succeed so it sounds like uh, a lot of what you're doing is trying to get people to think about um, that ultimate success and then think through uh, what the ramifications are. Like like you described so well, where in, in the flow from the start to the finish are potentially the choke points to identify things that you might be able to grow into later, but if you get wrong at the right. outset um, are going to be very, very limiting and costly down the line. Exactly. Yeah. And, and some of these things are, I mean, I admit I've learned in the middle of projects and, and been a lot more expensive than I had planned. One of the things I thought was um, you, you can't in, assume that your architect or your engineers are going to know what the specs are, what the environments are for things. So, for example, if you have a steam-fired brew house and the drain from that needs to go out to a public line, you need to make sure that either one, you dump to a condensate storage stack 
or you're dumping through a iron pipe to get out to the, the sewage line that you're not going to impact because if you have, oh, say, a plastic PVC pipe and you're dumping a scalding hot water, steaming hot water into that, um, you're not going to have a pipe for very long and then suddenly you're going to have costly floor repairs. Um, that was actually a cheaper fix than I had expected, but I mean, I thought I had laid out a fairly efficient uh, steam layout system, and it still ended up costing thirty thousand um, dollars. It's one of those things of steam layouts you you really need to make as simple as possible. The advantage is nowadays with uh, the low pressure steam systems, they're far more efficient that you don't necessarily have to put a firewall around them and worry about explosions and things like that, which is really handy. But you have to work through these problems. It's it's not an overnight thing of you have to think through start to finish. You can't assume that just because an architect says, oh, yeah, I've done a brewery before, double check that all these things are in there. If you say in the brewer's bathroom, I want a spare shower because after a long hot day, maybe I need a shower or I'm going to go to an event in the evening and I want that capability, you're really going to hate it when you're, you know, a third of the way through the build out and you realize that shower got taken out of that early design layout. Not that that's ever happened to me, but, um, these, these little design things, you, you get really good at, at double checking and seeing what, what goes on. And you really can't assume anything, which is, you know, a good thing with anything in brewing and beer is one of my fundamental lessons that I learned early on is, if my gut feels that something's wrong, it's wrong. Don't don't even just halfway dismiss it. Go figure out what the problem is because it's right. It is always right. The gut, your gut will tell you exactly what's right or wrong. So it it's good to listen to that if you have that sense. And a lot of it too, especially if you're going into an existing brewery, is there's a lot of noise or certain things that occur, smells that are routine, that you get to develop as root and passion, that this occurs in this space. Um, one of the breweries I worked at had an air compressor that would kick on about every 15 minutes for about 15 seconds and then shut off. And I was sitting at a beer judging competition in, with someone else, and I'd been at the brewery for a little bit at that point. And um, it kicked on, and the guy started to jump, and he's like, what's that? And it's like, that's normal don't even worry about it don't even, that that happens all the time but another time we were in that same brewery with one of my classes and someone was in the middle of giving the advanced part of the tour and all of a sudden i heard this loud hissing noise that doesn't occur in that brewery and i walked over and at the same time the head brewer both of us stuck our heads out through the fermenters at a particular space going, what is that noise that both of us knew that was not right? And around that time, the head cellarman walked around the corner and said, oh, that's me. I just shut off this over here and in de decompressing it, it's blowing down. And we all went, okay. And we turned around and went back to what we did. But everybody knew the sounds of that place, that there were certain rhythms that we heard that were natural. And, you know, that's part of that understanding. Don't make assumptions. Once you learn a place, then you know certain sounds. I mean, another case, I was walking past a machine on a packaging day, and I said, there's something wrong with that pump. Now, the funny thing is, when I, my hearing is not good. 
it's it's pretty reasonable in mechanical levels, but in human decibel ranges that normal that we should interact on, it's terrible. But I can hear certain mechanical off, and I said that pump is not working right. And sure enough, we went over and looked at it, and it turns out um, it was a glycol pump, and it had frozen. And we would have had issues with the beer later that day if if we hadn't caught it. And it's just the, the, the knowing of what your place sounds like, what do you smell, what do you hear, and, and that awareness of situational awareness is really important as much as not making the assumptions. I mean, both of those things are key. So That makes sense. And sort of that advice and that, that perspective and mind frame, as well as a lot of the experience that you've spoken about, uh, certainly makes sense now that you're teaching. But how did that come about? How do you go through this arc of kind of uh, home brewing, home brew store, brewery, consulting to build breweries, and then teaching as well? Well, I've been teaching this class for about five years now. And so um, a lot of it goes back to the fact that we started doing classes at the homebrew shop. And me and another person who is actually a head brewer at another brewery in the, brewery in the area um, began doing these. And a lot of it, we just stood up and we were talking through and walking through the process. And really, it's not that much different than doing it on a one-on-one basis inside the shop, except we actually had a small kettle. We were doing an extract batch. And you start doing that time and time again, and you start to get more comfortable with it. And another facet of working in the brewery is you're constantly giving public the tours and walking through what is the process steps, explaining it to them, especially to people who've never done this before. So the community college realized that they needed, it was a potential in their labor workforce division that that was a skill that was needed in the local labor market that was underserved because the homebrew shop can only be stolen by certain, or so many employees can be taken out of there. And then the owner of the shop's going, well, now what do I do? I haven't got anybody who can work for me. And so uh, that, that only progressed so far. And eventually they realized they needed to find people who could do this. And they'd worked with a couple different people, but I just happened to be working on uh, compass at the time. And because of that, a lot of startup time, yes, there are times of intense, I need to get this paperwork, I need to get this documentation settled. But while you're waiting on that to be processed by the government or whoever the entity is, you've got a lot of downtime between those spots. So I had a lot of time where I could develop the curriculum. And, and we had a rough idea of where it was going, but uh, ended up developing out these lectures. And the content has updated and changed. Um, one of the things I really like about the MBA books is a lot of the base process are very much still the same, but you go to the hops section. Yep. The hops section, if you look at the book, it's dated from about 10 years ago. And when you factor in what it takes to publish a book, you're talking about things that were written about 12 years ago and the hop market is nowhere near where it was 12 years ago in terms of diversity and styles. Um, the UK is still listed as one of the primary uh, hop growing regions, and they're down below 2,000 acres of land being produced for hops. I mean, all these things that you kind of, so you're constantly updating. I mean, I'm constantly, for my reading that I do just in and of myself, 
I'm still adding things or constantly looking up little things to in incorporate into the class, like uh, the latest uh, issue of the hop growth in the or no malt growth for this last year for packaging just came out uh, about a week and a half ago. And, and literally, it was just perfect timing because I told the students one class, well, we're still going to have to go after last year's data. They should have released the report. I don't have it yet. And then the next class, I said, oh, on the class page? Yeah, I've added the latest report. It just came in. Now you can have it and compare it to last year's. So um, there's been a having that building of that brewery at that time allowed me the freedom to teach a lot and figure out a lot of the curriculum. Um, and so I still put a lot of time into each individual class. I'd say four to six hours on average for every three hour presentation of, at a minimum. But it's one of those things of over time, a lot of it is looking at this week's lecture and does it make sense and do I need to update this? And I have a, I keep a couple of pages in Google Docs of just things where, oh, I saw this article. I may want to incorporate that next class. And I'm just constantly adding things to it and, and rotating in new sets of data and information. For the benefit of the listener, uh, I, uh, at one point while you were uh, referring to them, I held up uh, uh, my copy of one of the volumes of the MBA books. Um, so I, I definitely get that in terms of like a solid base. And um, the fact that a any publication, uh, as much as uh, the publishers and uh, organizations like the Master Brewers Association of America uh, are invested in trying to keep those up to date, um, the state of the industry just evolves incredibly fast. And uh, another point for the listener to be clear when you talk about that uh, labor development, that workforce development, uh, is that you are in North Carolina. So this is definitely one of the more um, vibrant sort of craft beer hotspots in terms of uh, that demand for, for skilled labor. So a lot of what you say there makes sense in terms of you don't want to strip the homebrew store and, and other sort of usual sources of labor bare. You want to have some way to feed into that to kind of keep that local economy going. Definitely. And, and currently, North Carolina has a right around 325 breweries, which is definitely the largest in the southeast United States right now. And um, we're pretty lucky that Wake Tech has a program and it started off as a small certificate program, but it is going to eventually it's growing into a full um, associate's degree and having a Department of Labor uh, apprenticeship uh, assigned to it. But um, Rockingham, which is kind of more in central, uh, closer to the triad region, Winston-Salem, they have a program um, with a very well-educated teacher in their program. And then up in Asheville, there's another, uh, the, the county up there has a, a technical school that is also doing wine distilling. So there's definitely, there's a need for it in this state, but at the same time, there's a lot of entities that are working, trying and to get that experience up. In fact, um, I think Rocky Mount, which has a kind of a um, incubator, a kind of a mini incubator for breweries, um, it, their local community college is trying to develop out an educationalist program as well right now. So um, I would say beside, you know, the American Brewing Program, uh, Siebel, Davis are always go-tos. But depending on what region of the country you are, you look around in your local market, you may be able to find programs that are available as well. And certainly in terms of uh, markets that are still growing, like here in Maryland, 
um, there's a lot to look to, like the work that you're doing in, in North Carolina to try to model, to try to find opportunities to work with, say, University of Maryland uh, to do similar sorts of programs. Sounds Certainly. like sounds like you are uh, very, very busy with all of this. Do you still get time to brew at all, either uh, on your homebrew, your pilot system, or um, is that something that you have time for? Not as much as I would like to be admitted right now. Um, that's the downside of, of doing a lot of the consulting and other stuff right now is I've, I've got one project where I'd like to be doing some um, test batches on a particular idea and concept that um, there's a lot of traction for in the market. It doesn't exist yet well in, for an affordable price. And I've got some ideas I'm working on and, and, and there's some experimenting, but part of the thing is our brew space is not necessarily well temperatured for this type of year. I mean, it's not inside. So we're kind of working on that. Um, I've done some brewing lately. I, I, I did a corporate kind of team building exercise where I helped some folks, um, kind of learn about beer and, and do it as a team exercise thing. And that was a lot of fun. And they made a wonderful Belgian triple out of that. So that was fun. Um, I do need to start doing some collaborations uh, with some of the North Carolina brewers. And I've got already started working on that, but I've got a list. But And I'll be there and fully involved on the brew days. A lot of times what happens with collaborations, it seems to me, is that you know somebody shows up and says, yeah, we're doing a collaboration. You go, great. And they just stand there and they don't really do a lot, um, especially the guild heavy ones. It seems like a lot of that, um, not, no offense to the guild folk. I mean, I think they try with the best intent. It is definitely something that I'm missing right now. I mean, someone asked me the other day, what do you want to be doing right now? And I said, I just really like to start making some beer again. Um, so there is definitely a part of that. Is there anything else at this point I haven't asked that you'd like people to know, uh, whether they be folks like me starting up a brewery or or people just interested in in the craft or the trade? I think the biggest thing is a keen awareness of safety. It's something I emphasize in the class constantly. Um, It starts off with good footwear. Um, People tend to think, oh, don't worry about your, you know, you don't think much of your shoes that much. But getting really good waterproof boots, getting something with good traction. We work in a lot of slick environments. There's a lot of dangers. Um, Electrical dangers, being careful with electrocution. Um, If you look up on the MBA podcast, uh, a friend in the area, Steve Gonzalez, had an issue with electrocution a number of years ago. And um, that's a real possibility. I've gotten shocked a number of times and thankfully it's all been low grade stuff, but it, it happens out there. We're dealing with water, we're dealing with hazardous chemicals. So, you know, wearing that eye protection, wearing those gloves definitely are key. Um, Back brace. I I can't say how many brewers I know or people in the industry who've gotten issues from picking up a bag of grain and not done it properly and and having that back brace because you pick up a bag of grain every day and you're doing it 5, 10, 15 times and you don't even think about it because if you're doing a 1,000 pounds of grain on a 20-barrel brew house, yeah, you're picking up 20 bags of grain easily without even thinking about it. And unless, of course, you have a silo. But a lot of that you you get so rote with it that you're not watching and so having that back brace having those safety methods is something that really everybody needs to do one i don't want you don't want osha visiting 
but more importantly, you, you want to go home safe. And, th- and that's really kind of a big thing. I, I have a lot of concern. I've heard a lot of horror stories and I don't need to go through them all now, but it, it's something that we have had increasing issues in the industry with. And so for people at the outset, pay attention. I mean, if they don't think that there's, you know, somebody says, oh, don't worry about it. Yeah, if you're doing anything with chemicals, have goggles on. Have gloves on. Don't touch anything without it. You, it's, it's just far too easy for something to go bad and wrong. And even though it's worked 100 times right before, it doesn't mean that it will again. Um, that, that really is kind of, for anyone entering the industry or starting a place, something to think about. I mean, there's so much more quality and safety um, information, both on uh, the MBAA website and the Brewers Association website than there were years ago on both quality and safety protocol. Um, to anybody who's opening a brewery, uh, before you go to the Great American Beer Festival with your brewery, make sure you have a, a microscope. Make sure that you're doing your base lab yeast counts. Get that technology. It's only $1,000. It's not that big of an expense. And frankly, at the end of the day, it improves the quality so much more overall. And having an awareness of that, it's so worth it. So, I mean, those are the two things is focusing because, yeah, you used to be able to make mediocre beer and it'd be okay. And you could always improve your process. I mean, I I have an old saying that I, I tend to not judge anybody when they first get open because they probably haven't been brewing on that system for many years. And so they're not comfortable with it. And so, you know, I try somebody's beer and then I give them three to six months and come back and see if their beer is any better. Well, in this current marketplace, you can't always do that. There's not the time at the lag. Customers will walk out the door going, that wasn't very good and never come back. I wish it wasn't so. I wish they had the patience I did. But, you know, that's the reality of the world we live in with 7,000 competing breweries plus and two breweries opening a day right now. You've got to be spot on from day one. Even you can tweak a recipe if it's generally good, but you need everything to be clean and spot on. Um, those are the two big things that I haven't really talked about as much, but really matter for I think any brewery or anyone looking to start a brewery. And uh, I, I get what you say about the market that that makes sense that uh, it's so competitive now that you really have to be thinking about this almost before that first batch. And you mentioned, I think, two really great resources in my experience, the MBAA, uh, both if you're a member, all the things that you get access to, the, t- the technical quarterly, uh, the podcast, which anybody can listen to, which also touched on your first point. Uh, there isn't just the electrical safety episode. There was one about um, safety around the kettle for boy lovers. Like, but there's tons of stuff. If, if you take uh, Thomas's advice to heart <laughs> and you go to those resources, there are a lot of things that, that uh, you can find that can help you right out of the gate. You don't have to necessarily learn as much the hard way. Is there anything in particular, any projects, uh, events coming up that you're excited about that you want to share? In a podcast to, to be named later, um, I am starting to do a startup business podcast that specifically looks at what issues and what uh, things to look at and consider when starting a brewery. Um, I've gotten an attorney who will show up probably about quarterly on it. I've got uh, some accounting people because while these things are not the things that we go into beer for, they are necessary things that 
a lot of times they can answer questions and, and figure out things well in advance. Um, I want to talk with people who are trying to open and face, you know, the problems they face. Um, I'm going to talk with people who've owned breweries and had failures and, and I'm going to try and tease out some learning from them as well. I think over time, um, it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, it's going to be about 15 minutes long, uh, as a weekly is the goal. And I think you'll see episodes online around the craft brewers conference at the beginning of April. Um, I've, Got some recording done, but I've got a little more to do, and I want to start pushing it out in the next month so that by there I can start doing some of the interviews while I'm there. So that's kind of one of my goals. Um, other than that, um, if you are driving by on the 40 freeway near Graham, North Carolina, please pull off at the Graham exit. Check out Naz Brew Works. And that are the big things for right now that I can uh, – come to mind so thanks for the time i appreciate you having me on sure thank you so much this has been fantastic that's it for this episode thank you for listening in the next dialogue of a peculiar character after a short break i'll be starting up season six to continue conversations with people in the craft beer industry here in maryland and in surrounding states hopefully as well as to bring more voices like the one you just heard about the trials and tribulations of starting a new craft brewery. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions, please send them to feedback at peculiarcharacter.com. If you enjoyed the episode, please help spread the word. Tell a friend about it. Please consider supporting the show financially by visiting patreon.com. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash peculiar character and become a backer patrons enjoy special behind the scene access and bonus content the support of my patrons is greatly appreciated until next time chase what calls you i would like to thank the internet archive for media hosting and bandwidth the views expressed on this program are my own and where applicable those of my guests and in no way reflect those of my employer or anyone else This show is produced from 100% recycled bits. Except where noted, permission to recycle those further is granted under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 United States license. That means you're free to change this show as much as you like as long as you don't alter credits and you share your changes under the same license. Theme music is Slow Burn by Kevin MacLeod at incompetech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0. Thank you.